Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcasts. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Mark Foreman. Mark is a psychotherapist operating out of San Jose in California. He also he provides developmental consulting for individual adults worldwide and is the founder and lead trainer of the Certified Integral Psychotherapist Global Training Program, and actively teaches and supervises both therapists and coaches interested in the direct application of integral theory. We talked about the distinction between psychotherapy and spiritual practice, and how they are unique tools that are best applied um, specific specifically in different situations so you might have a spiritual experience and the way to unpack that experience might be best done with a psychotherapist or it might be done best with a shaman or a uh, meditation teacher or the one, uh, one experience might be broken into different parts and you might take part of it to work with a psychotherapist and part of it to work with a meditation teacher, for example. Um, so my belief is that the best way to go is to do psychotherapy and spiritual practices. Um, they kind of, they're like um, the two wings of a bird that fly together to help the bird fly. And uh, I hope this conversation helps illuminate which, when's the most appropriate time to use which of these tools. I hope you enjoy. I certainly did. Mark Foreman, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. And um, we, this is the first time we've, we've met, um, but I've been listening to interviews you've done with other people and we're both part of this uh, integral global Facebook page and, uh, you know, watched you interact with people. And the topic I wanted to explore with you today is the divergence and convergence of psychotherapy and spiritual practice. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the crux of the, the question is, is what, which tool to use for what job? And I feel that in the spiritual but not religious scene, which I kind of put myself in that camp, and I think a lot of people that would listen to this episode, um, you know, identify as that. I think there's it's quite unclear about whether something is an issue that's best dealt with a psychotherapist or a spiritual teacher. Um, and uh, just to outline the broad kind of pattern of this that in pre-modern times the psychotherapy and spiritual practices were seamlessly woven together and i'm thinking of the buddhist practices for example where you have these preliminary practices and uh daniel p brown uh, who's a very a, uh, long-term practitioner of tibetan zogchen and tantric buddhism but also a psychotherapist has kind of 
describe those preliminary practices as psychotherapy. And, you know, one question I'd like to explore with you today is, you know, is Western style psychotherapy a better fit for Westerners rather than some of these preliminary practices that you find in Buddhist texts and, and those kind of things? And then you know, when modernity uh, hit the scene, we have this kind of separation of um, psych we've got secular psychotherapy on one, one hand and then religion on the other. Um, not much conversation between the two and uh, spiritual practices uh, or experiences are seen as quite often as uh, infantile uh, you know this this, this what's uh, Ken Wilber's referred to as the pre-trans fallacy um, is an important thing to have bear in mind with that and then you know with the, the postmodern era that we're, we're kind of in at the moment um, there's been this rather than in the sense of a thesis the antithesis and then a synthesis of of bringing these two together, but in a in a in, in a way that there's some clarity between the two. It's not like you don't just merge the thesis and the antithesis together into a mush. And I feel like, you know, what I've encountered a lot in the scene, the, the spiritual scene out there, uh, for the spiritual but not religious type, is a kind of blurring between the boundaries of psych psychotherapy and spiritual practice which i think is unhelpful and stops people from going deep into their psychotherapeutic work and also stops them from going deep into their you know non-ordinary transpersonal experiences uh, that you, you might classify as spiritual or religious um yeah so it's uh, which tool to use for what job roughly so there's there's my little intro intro uh, what are your initial thoughts on that? Well, I just want to say thank you. It's a pleasure for to be here. And I'd say I certainly think quite a bit about these questions. So they're they're on my mind very regularly, uh, particularly as I meet with clients and have clients who um avail themselves of spiritual practices of all sorts and also want to do uh, psychotherapy and, and elements of therapy. So the question of what to use when is a very living question for me uh, in my work. So I would say this is a good conversation and uh, one I expect I'll enjoy. So you know, my own personal history with this, um, I've been doing meditation practices and uh, uh, things like that for uh, you know, 25 years or so. And for the first 10 years, roughly of that, I was interested in psychotherapy. I actually started a psychology degree, uh, but I didn't enjoy it, packed it in and went off to study Eastern religions. Um, but I, I, so I was always been interested in psychology, but I kind of felt like the spiritual traditions I was engaging with kind of covered it all, uh, covered the, you know, the whole of life and all the territory. And 
it was predominantly Tibetan Buddhism I was practicing, uh, but I was very interested in, in, you know, which is a kind of tantric form of, of Buddhism. And I was also interested in the, the Indian tantric tradition as well. But then I kind of hit a, a point after about 10 years of that where I realized um, I should actually, I'd always thought psychotherapy was for people that were crazy or mentally unwell. Um, a bit like being ill and going to see a doctor. But then I realized it's just like working out your body, you know, like looking after your body, exercising. It's healthy people do psychotherapy too. <laughs> it was it was like an unconscious kind of prejudice I had against it, uh, which I think is actually quite prevalent, you know, in contemporary uh, Western society. Um, so then I, I thought, well, I'm just going to do this as an, an experiment. I started I've actually been working with the same psychotherapist for 13, 14 years. And uh, it's really enriched my life. And it's, it's, it's enabled me to go deeper into my meditation practices. Um, psychedelics is also something I've uh, been very interested in for a long time. Has really helped me there too, um, big time. And um, so I... I now know uh, that how important it is to do psychotherapeutic work and spiritual work. And there, you know, there is overlap between the two, but when I do psychotherapy work, I'm really interested in doing shadow work with my, you know, person with my very personal shadow work. Um, and uh, then obviously with the meditation practices, I'm trying to, expand into transpersonal territory um so that, that's how you know my, how i've come into this position of being very interested in in this topic so i think you know one way to think about it is we have two hands and, and one of them is devoted or should be devoted to the, the, the problems and the strengths of a meaning-making self, a self that has continuity in the world, a self that has likes and dislikes, strengths and weaknesses, uh, um, sort of triumphs and wounds on one hand. And it seems to me that people who try to ignore that the pursuit of that in favor of the pursuit of something solely spiritual, which we might call the pursuit of sort of non-self, uh, get themselves in quite a bit of trouble. And it's almost like clockwork that you can count the time and every five seconds, a spiritual teacher writes the article that tells the, tells the world that they didn't take themselves seriously enough and that led to such and such uh, problems in their community. And now they're, they're looking more closely at who they are and where they've been and their psychological tendencies. 
So I believe on one hand, we have this meaning making self apparently that needs our attention. And that is more in the realm of psychotherapy. Then we have this capacity for transcendent states that ultimately don't point to a solid self, but to a transparent self, which is connected, if you like, uh, with everything. And my feeling is if you have those two hands, they inter they're interwoven and they actually strengthen one another, even though they seem paradoxical. They would seem that they would be at odds, but the actual reality is they're mutually supportive. And that's a little bit of a mystery. We don't know why that is, only that it seems to be sort of as you were saying, as you do your psychotherapy, your meditation practice improves. Or conversely, a lot of people will say, I had a breakthrough in meditation and now I'm actually able to process some things in therapy that I, I'm not able to. Um, I think the danger lies in doing one of these things only and especially in the modern world where we're asked to have a, a relatively complex sense of self. So um, we have to make choices and decisions that are grounded in the individual as opposed to dictated by the culture which is the old traditional way, which works great in many ways, but it is also dying off in the face of the, the, the many splendored thing which modernity offers, which is all these expressions of self. Mm. I, I was <clears throat> listening to Joseph Campbell the other day and he was <clears throat> talking about you know this this east meets west moment that happens you know in, in the over the 19th century and uh, gave rise to all the sort of spirituality that's so popular now in the west and that it was a kind of um, collectivism versus individualism moment and you know the 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 notion of being an individual was very very different in the west and the east and in the east with much more you, you were your role your societal role and um you know that the yeah uh, and put it with it and in the west very 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 focused on this pers personality um and how that wasn't necessarily realized at the time now we can look back with hindsight we can we can see that um but it, it created a lot of problems because uh you know the lack of understanding of the the, the cultural difference there um and i mean we're decades on and i think that we're still feeling the reverberations of that misunderstanding still happening now mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, and I think it's, it's a complex discussion because part of it has to do with traditionalism versus modernism. So even if you go back a certain distance in the Western tradition, you were still largely your role in society. There wasn't necessarily a well articulated individual self. Now, I think the West has for, for lots of reasons, but mainly because it's in our Judeo-Christian roots to place some primacy on the individual in a way which I think is interesting and has been unfolding for a couple of thousands of years. I do think the West has a bit of a head start uh, and a set of expectations around that that's different from the East, it's more well-developed. That said, um, like meditation is something of a universal, so you know you take an average westerner and you put them on a meditation retreat and more or less they're going to start having a lot of the experiences that the easterners would have there's some common pathways there uh and now we know this really quite well particularly as we have buddhist meditation teachers or yoga teachers or what have you who've been practicing for 40 years. Um, and, you know, they don't, uh, I, I don't think they place meditation as some sort of Eastern only process. It's a human process that they've undertaken and, and recommend to people. And likewise, my experience, and I would say this working as a psychotherapist with people from 20 20 different countries probably since I live in the Bay Area, California, which is highly uh, populated with immigrants and then the first generation children of immigrants, that psychotherapy is similarly universal um, uh, for people. It, it, It makes as people get into it, it makes just as much sense for them, regardless of where they're from. They can find their place in the therapeutic dialogue and derive benefits from it, just like everybody else. And there's research to support this that, people from different cultural backgrounds all benefit from psychotherapy. Some uh, cultural backgrounds uh, have folks staying in therapy for shorter periods of time. So there's a difference there, but the nature and the uh, effectiveness of psychotherapy doesn't change according to the culture of the person. Um, I'll end with a little anecdote. I had a cross-cultural psychology teacher in graduate school. His name was Henry Poon, and he was a psychologist from China. And 
this was, as you might imagine, there were lots of questions. Is psychotherapy just a Western uh, imposition on the world that we were sort of colonizing the minds of other cultures and other people? And so I said to Professor Poon, I said, why, why do you want, <laughs> why, why do you want to emulate what we're doing if what we're doing is, you know, tainted with uh, the biases of Western history? Uh, why do you want to take this back to China as he had been? And he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, this is what we have. Um, in other words, psychotherapy is this art form that uh, the world has and we're going to use it <laughs> in China. And perhaps it requires a few tweaks, but more or less it works. And so it, it behooves us in China and in, in other locales to learn the art and then tweak it for the culture. Uh, and since then I've worked with other psychologists in China, uh, Japan, I mean, it just doesn't, the same principles are very effective. Uh, and, and then it's just down to the small but important differences between cultures. Yeah, I, I, I love that you're, you're calling it a human thing because one of the things, uh, so I've done some training in voice dialogue, uh, some of which involved uh, a few weekends spent with a, a group of about 20 people. And you go very, very deep in these sort of sharing sessions. So I, you know, have a, I've had a bit of analogy to sharing circles, you know, because I've sat through some really long and uh, tortuous ones. So I was a little bit when we started doing this uh, in these in these sessions, I was I was wasn't sure about about what was going to happen. But something about the specifics of the, that particular group meant that it, it didn't become one of these um, uh, really self-indulgent ones. Um, which which just go on and on, but I mean, so, so w basically we were li we were pulling back the curtain on our own lives and dreams and difficulties and traumas and um, it just very very openly to each other. And what I realised after doing this quite a lot was that. It, it, I, it was it was a pathway to feeling a great connection with people and humans, and I really felt that we were one, you know, like in this kind of big human family, almost like one person, one giant person. That you know, the, the, the details, surface details, are always different with people's life stories, but there's so many similarities. And I, and having done done that quite a bit and gone really deeply it kind of led to, to this this very visceral and emotionally vibrant sense of being connected with with all people um 
and that that sort of a distinction i mean that's you know you, you have your your own individual psychotherapeutic sessions but doing group therapy too and then you know there were people represented from different cultures there for sure different countries i don't know how many countries were represented but it'd be you know i could imagine doing that with 50 different people from 50 different countries all together and then coming out of that feeling very much connected with people in yeah one thing yes. one yes. critique i did did have about the the voice dialogue thing which you made me think of something you said earlier was that we went a whole year without anybody asking the question who is aware of our personalities you know who that we didn't really touch into the transpersonal dimension of of who we are yeah um and and i so i realized that you could do it you could do a lifetime of, of voice deep deep voice dialogue training um without ever asking these bit the big questions like uh, you know that who, who is like in the style of romana mahashi you know who is who is aware of your personality it's a really really deep question and it's been the crux of my meditation practice for example for many many years um and uh i felt i got re really into the big mind process that genpa roshi created um for quite a number of years and i felt like he kind of addressed that gap in the voice dialogue process by actually moving into these transpersonal voices yeah so i think you know there there are a couple of approaches uh to this larger question of how you address both psychotherapeutic content and spiritual content. And, and one approach is that you just cross train, uh, meaning you go to your local, you know, uh, authentic practice group or authentic relating group, or you see your therapist do your voice dialogue but then you know next weekend you go and you sit a meditation retreat uh and you practice you know concentration on the breath and so on and so forth and by and by you move towards a more integrated sense of self because you're doing these two things now the the newer way is that teachers are becoming increasingly a bit more hybridized themselves. So I'm not that familiar with uh, Genpo Roshi. I know a little bit about Big Mind, but it, it clearly is a practice that has a therapeutic element, but then also has a spiritual element. And so you're trying to practice some version of both at the same time. Um, I am of the preference that I like to cross train a bit more. Mm. 
because I, I like the focus of just doing therapy when I'm doing therapy and not having this little exit ramp of, well, you know, who knows, who is the knower of these therapeutic thoughts. Uh, I like on my meditation retreat, you know, to not think too much about my personal self, uh, you know, in order to do the retreat, I like the purity of doing the practices. And then I trust myself to the best I can to bring them both home and make sense of, of where they both fit. Uh, I would say the future though is probably in both, in both cross training, but also in going, what are going to be newer hybridized forms of, yeah. of psycho-spiritual practice. Um, and of course that, that isn't entirely just new. You know, there were people like Roberto Asagioli who, who founded Psychosynthesis. He was a, a colleague in some fashion of Freud's, but really quite the first integral psychotherapist. And his system really addressed both. So he's an early version of a hybrid model. Um, and I think people will just continually be trained in both. Diamond Heart is another one that I think of as it's a psychological tradition. It has a therapeutic element that's pretty significant. And it also has... Uh, a lot of spiritual practice and state training. Is that A.H. Uh, Almas, the diamond approach? Almas. Yeah. That's, that's the one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, so I, I've been very much in the cross training way of doing things. Um, I started doing this, uh, actually, started doing integral life practice um, in 2007. And, you know, it is. It, it, it kind of started out quite partitioned. Um, but I, I, I think, as you say, over the years, it's, without even trying to consciously work it all out, how it all fits together, it, you, you just, it just becomes baked in, uh, you know, because ultimately you are one person, <laughs> you know. So, um, so when I do, like you were saying, when, the psychotherapeutic work I do with a, is a guy called Gary Hawk. Um, he's a, a part of the integral world. You know, he he does spiritual practices and you know, you know body training and um, psychotherapy. You know, he I know that he knows the whole context of the human condition. But when we do therapy, we we go very much on the personal level and. You know, he he and I know that I have a tendency to spiritualize events or a situation. And I'm always trying to escape to that bigger context, you know, like, um, and, you know, we might get into spiritual bypassing uh, in, in a bit in our conversation. But he's he's always pulling me back to the to the, you know, the personal level. And it's like, stop, you know, uh, just, uh, just, uh, don't, don't run away from this very real and personal 
pain you're trying to just numb by you know so taking this bigger wider context but then because I've, I'm doing that work, as, as, like you were saying, when I do the meditation practice, I can really let go of all of that and go very deep into the transpersonal stuff. And this, the last thing to say that what you're saying had made me think of is I'd heard um, Roger Walsh, who does a lot of these very long Zogchen retreats, and he helps out with answering people's questions, students that have questions in break times. And uh, the vast majority of the questions he was being asked were psychotherapeutic questions not to do with Zogchen meditation and there's nothing wrong with asking psychotherapeutic questions but a Zogchen meditation retreat you're you're kind of blowing your chance so if you're sitting with someone like Roger Walsh who's got years and years and years of very very deep practice you're blowing the opportunity to ask him some very very precise questions about Zogchen meditation on something that you could like get any psychotherapist in your local town could help you with that you know yes and so you know meditation and spiritual practice can be sort of the back door into psychotherapeutic practices or psychotherapeutic questions and i think that's a consequence of um you know the the relative immaturity of an of a practitioner um to know what the questions they have uh, that are most important so in other words if if someone does a zogchen retreat and ends up with a psychotherapeutic question pro probably they miscalculated a bit what they need right now yeah. um, and may may have internalized some of the messaging that spiritual spiritual practice will take care of everything there's still a lot of that out there despite uh increasing pushback that that is not the case um and that's not a, a a heavy judgment on people. I just think it's an experience uh, uh, piece, meaning the more experience you have cross-training doing both, the more you're able to identify what it is that you're pulled to train or work at a given time. And that should be based on some of the problems that you're having. So, you know, reliably psychotherapeutic problems uh, have to do with confusions about love or confusions about work or family, uh, confusions about self-identity in these very different contexts. Um, and so if we're having some of those very normal problems of who am I in this family of people and how can I address these conflicts in myself or in someone else in my intimate circle those that's a psychotherapeutic question first and foremost uh, you can go on a meditation retreat with all that stuff in the hopes of surrendering some of it 
However, it's an imperfect solution. Uh, more likely, you're going to enter states of consciousness which are uh, powerful and helpful as an overall tonic, you might say, but you're still going to have that same communication problem in most cases when you return home. And of course, that's the, the, the background of the famous quip. If you think you're enlightened, go uh, spend a week with your family. Yeah. Um, so, so I would say in that Roger Walsh case, it's, uh, it's probably a mix up. Um, there is a way I like to think about the difference between psychotherapy and spirituality, at least as a basic difference. And what I think it is, is that psychotherapeutic practices um, require your energy to move down and out into the world. So the self who engages in the world uh, sort of reaches into the world to make connection with people, uh, with situations, with relationships. So it's almost as if you're psychotherapy, you're leaning in to the, to the normal world. And meditation, at least the beginning, which can be a long time, but the practices of the beginning are really about drawing the energy in and then up so that you begin to cultivate states of witnessing observation that are a little bit removed from the from time and space and the the different, the sort of energy of the manifest world that's in front of you. And so the cross training piece is to be able in your meditation to draw up and back a little bit towards a warm detachment, you might say. But then in, in a psychotherapeutic moment, to allow your energy to, to flow forward and engage uh, the, the person and the world that's in front of you. Mm. And that people develop a strong preference rather than a flexible energetic body that will do both things. Um, and the best way to practice it is to put yourself in environments where each is being cultivated and practice cultivating it. But then when you have, go to another environment and practice the other one. Uh, and at first, it's almost like two qualities like strength and flexibility seem to be at odds with one another, but if you do cross training, you can be very strong and yet very flexible. Um, yeah, that that I I like that. It's made me think of um, 
is this term that I've heard Tim Freak use called the individual. And uh, there's, there's some convergence of the, the kind of uh, you know, cosmic, universal, and the very personal and individual. Um, and it, sometimes I have these, these kind of yearnings for God, goddess, the divine, and like in a kind of moment of prayer, it's like I'm kind of, I'm saying, basically, I want to be you to, you know, the object of my my yearning, the God or goddess. Um, and then the, the, the reply that comes back is, well, I want to be you. You know, and it's, uh, you can't, it's just not just a one way thing. You, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're going to become me, You've got to let me pour myself right into you and um, explore, uh, you know, another way to say it would be consciousness has this innate drive to explore every nook and cranny of all the perspectives out there in every single species, you know. Um, and the, the more you do your psychotherapeutic work, you are you're a little bit like a, one of those cave divers that are exploring those unexplored caves and you know mapping out and just shedding light and, and populating the, this new these nooks and crannies that are quite a dark difficult to get into but that's where consciousness and god and goddess wants to go in there uh, you know because it's endlessly fascinating for consciousness to explore those things it's a, it's a little bit like mm -hmm. um reminds me of the you know saying where the you know the gods uh i think this comes from uh the ancient greeks that the gods were jealous of humans because they were mortal and everything meant so much as a result of that and when you're immortal you know you're sort of there's this kind of meaningless and listlessness that that comes with that um yeah Yes, yes, I like that a lot. And it reminds me of some uh, some spiritual teachers. I think uh, Adyashanti comes to mind, uh, who talk about the prospect of sort of waking up to your true nature in a spiritual sense but then using that as a way to explore the relative self, uh, which is a process he, I've heard him say, really feels quite endless, sort of how the, how the non-dual self, if you like, interacts with the relative self but that it's easier to do in that order because you're less attached. And, and you have more but, courage. I think once, once you know the parts of yourself which are genuinely fearless, and I'm thinking of you know, two ways you could describe those. You've got the sort of the formless awareness side of things, and then you've got the more uh, uh, divine goddess, mother nature uh you know form side of it the transpersonal form side of the, of, of the equation 
you know once you've you've got some relationship with those parts of yourself and and out there in the wider context um it gives you the courage to to do this really painful uh you know quite focused and uh yeah you know sensitive work you're you're prodding the the delicate bits of yourself um and uh if if all you've got is your personality your persona that's the that's the only tool you've got to kind of bring to that process there's no way to hold the pain i think in a way or it's 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 overwhelming you know the, the pain sort of becomes you and there's no way to yeah it's no way to hold that yep so i was thinking you know if someone were listening to this conversation you know they might ask well where do you start mm. uh and what i would say is you know um uh there's no time like the present. So it's good to start now. But what do you start with? I think the two most basic things are that you allow yourself or put yourself in a situation to do therapeutic activities. And that could look like traditional therapy. Uh, that could look like group practices. There are so many things out there that are related to therapy, at least if you live near a, a, a modern cultural uh, city, there are a great many practices to try, um, which have a therapeutic feeling. So that's one thing to start doing. And the other is to explore and take up a meditation practice of some sort. And of course, that can be the traditional sitting meditation, but it could be a moving meditation like uh, Tai Chi or yoga or a walking meditation. There are many variations. Uh, there's lots of good apps now that will take you through uh, meditation like uh, uh, Headspace or Sam Harris's uh, um, Waking Up app, etc. But bo since both therapy and meditation take a long time to learn, if you just set yourself on the pathway with those two practices, um, uh, you'll reap the benefits. Uh, going forward in time, they both really pay off. And um, I, think, I think it's a it's an adventure and it's a journey, and to not have too many expectations about where you're heading necessarily with it. You know, to just be curious, be adventurous, just do the practice, and then see what happens. You know, it's like we we so often want to know the destination that we're headed to, and I think one of the great jokes of the path of meditation is that at a certain point you realize that there isn't a destination that you're getting to and the same with the psychotherapeutic work it's, as you said earlier it just goes on and on and on deeper and deeper yeah. and deeper and it is inherently rewarding the process itself uh 
you know and it's just that alone is it's a good mindset to have to start with this stuff i'd say yes so what i hear you saying is you're talking about the shift between goal oriented thinking and process oriented thinking and what i would say is that's a valuable shift so instead of uh you know wanting to bake 10 apple pies today what you really want is to enjoy the process of baking and if you happen to make 10 great but if you happen to make seven and you loved it that's process oriented thinking the only thing i would say is that that comes itself with time oh absolutely and that at the beginning when you're starting it's actually quite good to have goals it's a goal is to be a kinder uh better communicator uh more peaceful more focused that's lovely uh and those are good goals and as you're saying uh it can be also terrific to to put down goals and just be open but i think most people need some time before they can appreciate the process oriented type of uh focus um uh that those of us who've been doing it for a very long time you know enjoy so much yeah i mean I, I can sit here having done so many years of these practices and say you know oh, there's there's no goal and uh, it just goes on and on and on and it's just inherently worth doing in itself um but you know i've done thousands of hours of work you know what I mean? so i'm not i can't you know not not saying yeah and i think that's one of the i mean this is uh, they were they're generally called the secret you know, sort of the secret teachings um that they were kind of secret because you didn't really want you to find out that there is no goal or whatever too early on because um you know you you need to actually understand that through having put the effort in <laughs> you know so otherwise yeah. it's not a, it's not an embodied recognition of that facts you know it's it's you can just sort of say all oh, right okay well that's that's the way it is and I understand it when when you when you actually don't. Yeah. One so one thing I'd like to explore with you is psychedelics. You know, a, a, a deep five-hour psychedelics experience can feel subjectively like you've had five years of psychotherapy. And now, I think you know, like so many of the things we're talking about here. There's a grain of truth there, but also, you know, you don't want to overblow it. And, and I think there's also this thing where it's very important to not just buy your first person experience of something whole, you know, take the whole thing and say, well, that was just what it was. And, you know, I've, I've, I've just sorted all my traumas out, you know, I've done, 
this on ayahuasca session or had five grams of psilocybin mushrooms and that's it it's like i'm sorted um now what would be your advice to people that because psychedelics really seem to sit in this middle ground between psych psychotherapy and spiritual practice there's there's most psych psychedelics have a very very distinct and marked psychological dimension you know they give you these great insights into your own the workings of your own mind and also they put you into these non-ordinary states where your normal reference points have gone so you know you're having transpersonal experiences at the same time so it's, it's kind of you know i can i can see how people could imagine separating you know some quite standard psychotherapeutic practice from a quite standard meditation practice but where where do you feel psychedelics sits with that and you know like how could people pick this apart because i know from my own experience and many people i've met you can become completely deluded about uh what you've actually been through and what you understand <laughs> through these experiences yeah so as a psychologist um i'm quite excited about the potential of psychedelics particularly as this new generation of research has come in uh, in the last five years really showing that psychedelics but also including ecstasy or mdma uh, can have real benefits particularly for the treatment of trauma um, in adulthood is how I would characterize it. And articles are coming out with a lot of frequency and these drugs appear to be more effective certainly than anything we have now uh, for addressing trauma. Um, so that's just one thing I would say. I would say also that they're probably not appropriate for everybody. So uh, if you have any bipolar tendencies or if you have psychosis or schizophrenia in your family tree, you probably wanna skip the psychedelics. Uh, that might not be the case with MDMA, which is not really a psychedelic per se, it's an empathy. You know, it's a drug that produces tremendous amounts of empathy, but not, not the um, fireworks of ayahuasca or psilocybin or any of that cluster of psychedelics. Um, how do I see them? Uh, they, they are very much what you describe. So they take people on journeys which often have profound spiritual and profound personal meaning and content. Uh, and then where I often see it is they come back into my office after their retreat and they're sort of blown wide open and they are trying 
to integrate what they have just learned. Um, and the problem is for a couple of reasons, I think the integration is a lot tougher uh, than people would suppose, partially because they were on a rocket ride of an experience and it's hard to return there. Um, whereas in contrast, meditative experiences very often if you get into a state you can then sit the next day and and perhaps duplicate that state so there's a repetition feature of meditation which is harder in psychedelics um but i think if people can focus their journey the focus, the aftermath of the journey on what were the main messages, what were the big things that they felt called to understand, they'll do a lot better other, as opposed to trying to grasp all that one might be aware of in a five hour journey, which I just think is too much to process, to be honest. Uh, so I think focused integration. So very often a client will go in with a question, how do I relate to my difficult sister? We fight all the time, what's happening there? And so they'll have a journey and they'll be shown some kind of information about their sister that uh, feels deep and spiritual about their relationship together and then they'll receive a message about how they need to approach their sister differently uh, and those are the kinds of things when they come back into therapy that's what I'm most interested in hearing because those can be carried forward as action steps now, the only thing I would say that I, I also know from so many clients with so many psychedelic sessions uh, is that the psychedelic trip does not solve all problems. Uh, it does not solve childhood traumatic episodes because they're so complicated. It might help with an aspect of that, but it's not going to, if someone was sexually molested as a child, it's not going to erase that karma in one fell swoop. I'm more optimistic about adult trauma, which is a different phenomena for a couple of reasons, but I just have seen people come out of the, the, the journeys and think that they now understand all of their childhood, but uh, those karmas, if you like, are so powerful that they just reassert themselves. Uh, and so you have to take pieces of the journey and apply it to pieces of the trauma. Uh, but I'm a little afraid that there's going to be 
there's going to be so much hype around these substances when they become fully integrated into treatment that people are going to say, I, I solved my childhood trauma uh, by doing this journey and it's going to turn out to not be true uh, and it's going to lead to frustration. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, having realistic expectations is so important in life you know it's we can have such grandiose expectations of of our own abilities or the bit or the potential of any a particular substance or this teacher that teacher this book this new method you know um makes me think of uh as some famous uh i think it's the highest ranking american uh, military guy to be a prisoner of war in uh, Vietnam and he was saying <clears throat> that it was the people that were the most realistic about their situation that fared, fared the best and people that were too pessimistic it didn't work out if they were too optimistic either it didn't work out and there's this kind of sweet spot you know where you're being a bit more authentic about yourself and life and the situation and another thing that I was thinking of, you know, that you you were just alluding to there is that, you know, you could have a psychedelic trip, then take the psycho the psychological content to your psychotherapist, work on that, then take some of the more non ordinary states of uh, you know of self identity and that that you'd experienced and discuss that with a shaman or a meditation teacher or you know so it's 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 kind of breaking that one experience apart and and dealing it with it in two different ways with the appropriate people and i think might be a better way to go than you know try and bore your psychotherapy your psychotherapist with all the you know <laughs> meeting the aliens and all that stuff and uh in, a, in the same way you know bore your meditation teacher with all your kind of talk about your you know, relationship with your girlfriend and all of that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I would even say you'd probably bore your meditation teacher with your altered state. <laughs> they would say, you know, okay, that's nice. Let it, let it pass and, you know, keep practicing. But I do think the shaman, the healer who works you know, so for for audience members who are may not be familiar, you know, a lot of people take this psychedelic work very responsibly, and that means journeying usually in a group and journal journeying uh, with the with the plant medicines with a shaman uh, of some sort who's trained to help people have the best journeys they possibly can have. That person uh, in that role has probably a lot to offer in terms of where the journey went on a cosmic spiritual level um, that I think is would be best directed mm. towards that person. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's another example of, using the right 
well, it's not the tool, but the right person or the right approach for that particular thing. So if you meet aliens in the DMT hyperspace, a shaman who's who's gone there many times and knows you know lots about this that's the person to talk to about that because as you say you bring that up with your zogchen teacher or something uh or your vipassana meditation teacher they'll be like well you know or particularly even you know zen's even more brutal isn't it it's just that's just a complete load of shit just forget about it when it isn't actually um yeah so it's like yeah i mean that's interesting so so out of that one experience we kind of come with these three directions you could go with it you know speak to a shaman about these elements perhaps you know it's it's not uncommon so something like uh ketamine is, is so dissociative that you you do have these experiences of formlessness that would be good then a zogchen teacher or um you know a sort of vedanta um practitioner you know they really specialize in that kind of zone of experience you know that's that's in, that's that's interesting well another thing i wanted to ask you about is relationship with gods and goddesses and so you know my personal practice i like to practice um you know first person second person and third person approach to spiritual practice and in that that second personal second person relational uh dimension of my spiritual practice i pray and communicate with you know gods and goddesses uh, for want of a better word i mean it's um but one question that keeps coming up for me is is how do we how do we have uh, a relationship with (coughs) excuse me deities that isn't just us wanting to have cosmic mummy and daddy in that you know there's nothing wrong with Mm -hmm. wanting to you know there's nothing wrong with wanting to have that feeling of a cosmic mummy and daddy i'm not belittling that but i'm saying it's not the that that's not the the only way to relate to deities and if if that's the only way you relate to deities there's this whole other area which is uh, probably more spiritually potent uh in that area that we could develop and it's you know how to how to discern your own relationship and, and and expectations in that respect yes it's a good question i think that you know the the first part of that uh can be a a therapeutic examination of your parents and what you did and did not get from them uh you know we uh Usually our parental relationships leave us with some wounds and some unfulfilled promise uh, that might have been. Uh, And to know what that is, uh, that I didn't receive attention from my father, that my mother was not very warm and forthcoming with her emotions, any thing like that 
so that you can identify on a therapeutic level what that was and you can recognize that you want to cultivate adult relationships that have those positive qualities that you missed. Um, so that would be a very psychotherapeutic practice and goal. Now, if you're addressing those things and then you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to have a second person, I, thou relationship with God or goddess, uh, then you can start off, I think, in a less confused way, less likely to be seeking a mother, father, uh, in a way that should be really psychotherapeutic, um, you're going to approach the practice a little more purely. And in that case, I think prayer practice is a wonderful practice um, and I think can take people very far in, in a type of prayer that's also uh, uh, has an element of meditation to it. Um, uh, devotional chanting, for example, comes out of the Hindu tradition, uh, is very much like that, has a feeling that you're cultivating a relationship. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you can do that therapeutic process, then you can engage the second person. And then I would say, you know, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, at that point, you're probably doing the best you can, and you want to move towards things that feel healing and, and empowering. And so if there's a little bit of cosmic mother and father in that way mixed in there, you'll be okay. Uh, I only think it can get problematic when there's a too much projection of what your real parents were like uh, or what you wanted them to be like onto the, the deity, I guess, mm. I would say. Did yeah. that make sense? Sorry? Did that make sense? Yeah, no, so I think, you know, what you're saying there is that there's no off-the-shelf answer for that question that you 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 really have to explore your own unique relationship with your parents with a psychotherapist to kind of lay that out on the table so you can say well i i'll have i have a natural tendency to to view a masculine deity in this way and a, and a feminine deity in that way um you, you know because of uh, who my parents were and i can just sort of notice that coming up when I'm doing this practice but I can also notice what else is happening and 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 that what else that is the interesting part in terms of you know having a, a an, an experience with a with a deity that's out of that psychological territory yeah I get quite a bit this is something I've been uh interested in but um, I'm not as, it's not as natively familiar, but the Orthodox Christian tradition um, 
has a, a very powerful uh, prayer tradition in it. And it, it involves the saying of the Jesus prayer, which is something very short, something like Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, but they practice that the repetition of the prayer and the prayer throughout the day, uh, like mantra prayer or mantra work. Um, but they are clearly pray, and they will talk about it. They are praying to someone. They're praying to Jesus. They're not simply repeating a mantra that maybe they, they're not thinking of the meaning of it. And, and it's my perception that they are very much cultivating uh, very deep states of consciousness, but leading with the second person uh, relationship. And that's how they just talk about sort of discovering God in the heart, maybe a language that they would use. Uh, and so they're a tradition that there's quite a lot out there on the web and you can get uh, just a little sense of how they approach it. I think it's very rich. Uh, and I know some folks in the integral community who've actually uh, taken part in the Orthodox tradition and have found it to be a rich source uh, for their practice and their growth. Um, but that's something I've been paying attention to lately and thinking about the consequences for my own practice. Mm. Yeah, I'll check it out. It's, that's that's a, <clears throat> a tradition I don't know anything about and uh, sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'll send you something Yeah, and I'll send something you can link for people in... Uh, uh, for people in the comments and then they watch the YouTube video. Mm. There's a couple of very good YouTube videos, one in particular uh, that I'm thinking of that we can link for people. Cool. What, um, so spiritual bypassing as a concept, mm. you know, it's, it's kind of uh, just the name delivers an intuitive understanding of what it is about but what are some of the specific examples like what are specific examples of the classic ways people try to bypass the discomfort of their personal lives um through spiritual practices yeah. like um psychedelics or uh meditation or prayer and and, and those kind of things there, there's there are definitely some I know every person is unique, but there, there's definitely some classics out there. And what are the ones that, that come to mind for you? Yes. So I have a different understanding of this uh, than anybody else I've ever read because prob probably because I was introduced to the term very early in my training perhaps when I was 24 or five and saw how it got used in communities and thought that there were some 
problems with it. And, and the first problem oh, is that- Sorry, to, just to instead you, um, it's like the, a, a term like that can become weaponized. You know, yes. that you, you just sort of beat people up with terms like that, you know? Yes. <clears throat> so the way that I talk about it to begin is that there's just an expectable level of bypass. So no matter what somebody's belief system is, they're going to use that belief system to fantasize a better reality than they have at this moment. And everybody does it, <laughs> almost literally. Now, not to the same degree, I suppose, but in other words, uh, people who enter into maybe very formal religious circumstances like a conversion to Islam or conversion to Christianity, they are going to avoid some of their life issues by fantasizing that their religious commitments are gonna solve their problems but they will naturally kind of grow out of that with time. So there's a way that there's a maturation process that allows us to be more grounded in the world and to address our issues more head on. And uh, so I don't know that we need to critique each other as much as as I have seen done using the term mm. spiritual bypass. I think a lot of it is just growth on the path. Yeah, um, what, what I think when you, you know, the first part of what you said there um, about having this kind of fantasy. So you, your fantasy is like a, a an attractor that you set up. It's, it's an incredibly... Yeah beautiful and complex and effective mechanism of consciousness to create some kind of fantasy that you project and that becomes the attractor that pulls you towards it and yeah you know that that is a that's a good that's a good thing you know we all we all want to have some kind of vision we're moving towards um and uh so I think you know that's quite an important distinction um, yes. because you 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 you, and, you need some vista you're you're moving towards, but at the same time it, you, that vista can become your happy place where it's like stuff gets real and you just want to look at that beautiful you know that beautiful land landscape or vision of the this paradise you know. Yes. So I, I relate a second type of bypass to that, that I call state-driven bypass. Mm. So this would be the idea that you maybe enter a meditation practice and develop different states of consciousness. And for a time in your life, you cultivate those states and actually sort of exclude a lot of mundane processes. Uh, a friend of mine called this spiritual anchoring uh, as opposed to spiritual bypass. 
So if you find somebody who is just in their practice and really diligently going deep, that's not necessarily a problem. It's often a temporary phase in life, uh, but it, it does push aside uh, sort of more worldly questions and aspects of the personality. So those are kind of more neutral or positive. Then I think uh, there's two that I would consider the, the problematic ones. Uh, and one of them is what I call narcissistic bypass. And that's actually the, the using of spirituality to feed a narcissistic element in the self or in the personality. And there's, that means there's a real mental health issue that's going on involving narcissism and the spirituality becomes now a way to express that. And this could, is something could I you Give a specific, could you like, you know, make up an example of that with some a bit sure. more concreteness around it? <clears throat> sure. So that would be someone saying, uh, I've, attained, I've attained enlightenment and there's nothing more for me to learn. And therefore I'm gonna tell you how this goes and what it is. And you, you will listen to me because I am the authority. And then there's no self-reflection uh, past that point there's the almost unshakable outward confidence. Now, whether inwardly the person feels that way or whether they fight with insecurity or uh, embarrassment or something, outwardly they don't show empathy uh, or uh, they don't expose vulnerability and not knowing. So without naming names, I'm sure that uh, listeners could probably think of a spiritual teacher or two who seems to have held that position. Um, and I think it's very tricky. There's some, spirituality is very attractive to narcissistic types because it seems to offer a, an answer to all the questions and seems to offer a pedestal that you can put yourself on. And um, particularly the, the types of spirituality practice where you become the deity yourself. You know, I'm thinking of tantric practices and the like. Yes. Uh, you know, two different people will approach that practice very differently. And a narcissist that means something becoming becoming the deity or a deity is a very different thing for a narcissist than someone else isn't it um yes yes a tradition in which you either become the deity or or become and then trans transcend the deity and uh, find your identification with you know the sort of living God, as it were, God in the moment, etc. It's a, it's so a little bit like, I, rather than 
becoming the deity on its own terms. You're yes. becoming the deity on your own terms. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the distinction. You, and, and I think yes. through psychotherapeutic uh, work, you get better at recognizing the authenticity of your motives, you know? Yes. And so narcissism can be less severe, in which case you can work with it. And narcissism can be more severe, in which case you just have to steer clear of those persons because they will find a way to uh, manipulate situations for their benefit. So it's sort of we've done two types of spiritual bypass that are not so big of a problem. This one is a problem, although more of a problem if you run into it with other people. <laughs> uh, you might not see it in yourself. It's hard to see. Um, yeah. I, I, and the, you know, th the other thing I would want to raise there is that I, I've seen this happen with a few spiritual teachers that they are basically, you know, they're the kind of second type of narcissist you're describing. You know, it's not just uh, mild narcissism, it's kind of full-blown narcissism. They do something awful, all their students turn against them. They kind of go off into the woods, do their work. You know, they make a big show of, oh, I'm off, I'm, you know, doing my psychotherapy and I'm, uh, uh, doing all of these other things and then after a couple of years they're back doing the same thing again and but it's almost like the reset button's been pressed and if somebody joins the story at the at their relaunch you know they're, they're in danger <laughs> you know it just happens again and again um and uh yeah i think it's that that's interesting that you you bring that up it's, i hadn't thought of that until this moment that, that there are some people that narcissism is such an issue that they're probably never but they're unlikely to ever get over that in their lives and if you you know i've i've skirted around different relig religious organizations and what some people might call cults over the years never quite uh, and i've never become a a full-blown member of any but you know i've kind of been fascinated with that world and um i think you know believing that people can change that's a good view to have in life you know it's 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 kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt but there are some people you just you can't do that to because they will just come back again and do it all again yeah yeah Yes, indeed. So the last type of spiritual bypass is the one that I think most people mean when they use the term, which is that uh, we, we overuse spiritual ideas or experiences to push away very pressing issues in our lives. So for example, I'm going to avoid questions of uh, what's healthy sexuality and romantic relationships because my spiritual tradition emphasizes that you shouldn't 
put too much energy into pleasure or into the worldly things. And so I'm gonna stay over here and remain sort of pristine if you were, uh, or protected from that. Uh, money would be another issue. Money is often a taboo issue in spiritual uh, circles. And so I'm not gonna pay attention to my financial life or what steps I need to take in the future because my tradition uh, emphasizes poverty or, or um, you know, uh, just taking what comes your way. Um, so all of these places where we, we can hide ourselves and it's not just that expectable maturation process there really is, uh, there really are issues under there that are trying to find their way into consciousness and we're pushing them away with spirituality. Well, and so that's what I think of what most people mean. And that happens, you know, with some frequency and it's where the psychotherapy is is a, a, a truly powerful addition to uh, spiritual practice because psychotherapy should and will uh, focus on those things. Freud said that it all boiled down to love and work. In other words, those were the two problems of life. Uh, and I believe he was correct. Um, it all boils down to love and family or romantic relationships, friendships, uh, or it boils down to what is my purpose in the world? How do I make a living or support others with my effort and labor? And really there aren't too many questions outside of those questions. Uh, so, psychotherapy puts those questions right up front and very starkly so that it, it can help when we are doing that type of bypass uh, where we're putting something in the closet, as it were. Yeah. Well, that, but, you know, when you describe those things, it makes me think of uh, being a monk or a nun. And um you know so if you if you live in a monastery you don't work so uh you're not having to do i mean you do you'd work for sure manual work um and uh administrative work and things like that but you're you're not working for money and your sort of survival needs are taken away because you're part and if you think of a tibetan monastery for example it's kind of in this feudal system you know where they're getting donations from Places and um, uh, you're celibate, so you're not having any sexual relationships. Um, some places you're in silence, so you don't actually have hardly you have hardly any interpersonal relationships with human beings. Um, uh, you know what are the other things? Power. Um, some of them are just radically egalitarian. You know, and they just. I'm thinking of Benedictine. Um, you know, I've been reading about uh Meister Eckhart and you know the the priory that he was part of you know it's radically egalitarian so 
and 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 you can contrast that with a with a tantric approach to spirituality where you're out in the world you're having sexual relationships you're earning money you are enter into hierarchical relationships um and you are surviving supporting your family you might be supporting you know other people and they're they're quite different approaches to spirituality and they both got long lineages and traditions and i don't so i think there's uh been been a been a been a recluse or being a monk or a nun is a good thing i think being a tantric practitioner is a good thing um but you know how does spiritual bypassing fit into that because that type of bypassing you're talking about in negative terms could sound like just your run-of-the-mill monastic life as a as a nun or a monk you know so on one hand i'm a bit cynical about the idea that uh monks and nuns live quite the simplicity of life that it would appear mm. that they live uh in other words uh, it's my speculation that power dynamics politics sexuality a lot of these difficult issues do find their way around in monastic life i've heard well, what i was talking say, about is uh, i think i was probably talking of a of a caricature of the monastic yes life, you know isn't it yes so i think on one hand the caricature probably isn't accurate totally it's not of course that they're having the level of immersion that a tantric would have in the world but i do think they probably have to deal with some of these things um in their own way now that said you know there is a rationale for devoting your entire existence to cultivating states and to cultivating the deepest possible insights into the nature of mind or reality and that some people have that drive and that uh the monastic life even if it does have more complexities than the caricature still has certainly more focus so I'm thinking now of the video that I'm going to tag uh, for, for this conversation of these Orthodox monks, uh, Orthodox monks in um, uh, Greece, and they do an eight-hour prayer liturgy every day, 365 days a year. Wow. Uh, and they film them and you can see these people are in another, <laughs> they're in another zone uh, from if you know how to read a facial expression. Mm. But of course, a person with that level of immersion is gonna, is gonna experience things that are uh, 
either beyond what most of us will or just with a consistency that most of us will never experience because that, you know, and <clears throat> that has an analog in the Tibetan tradition where they will take three year silent meditation retreats and be meditating 20 hours a day or whatever it is. So I, I think there's a place in the world uh, for this. I think it serves a purpose. Uh, I think very few people have that specific karma where that's the only thing that they're interested in, but I think people do. And I also think it's good to have those resources available for people who may spend some of their lives in a monastic way. I'm thinking of uh, the singer songwriter Leonard Cohen, who spent some years at a Zen monastery. Um, and I think to have that available as well is a valuable thing. Um, in terms of just bypassing, I think that it's likely to happen in that context. And that's some of the reason why we've seen some very uh, potent teachers who seem to have a real degree of realization come out and struggle with the temptations of the world. So there's a, a, the protections in the monastic system to maybe help avoid that aren't there. And they think that they've really mastered the whole terrain when they've really mastered more of the spiritual terrain and not the psychotherapeutic terrain. And so they run into psychotherapeutic problems. So there is an issue of the transfer from the monastic life into a teaching role that's more in the world. And, you know, I have some empathy for what that must be like and, yeah. you know, uh, empathy for people who get caught up with teachers who end up being hurtful in some cases because their their psychosexuality is not well integrated for example uh i don't know if i quite answered your question but <laughs> yeah no I, I went in a lot of directions there yeah it's um, good and i i think you know somebody coming out of um a retreat period psychotherapy could really lubricate their transmission of what they've experienced because you you need to kind of synchronize your personality with other people's personalities to actually transmit information on a very basic level you know i mean um and i think some 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 people they they they're so out of touch with normal personalness that it's very, I'm thinking of Krishnamurti comes to mind that 
you know, he he was clearly experiencing um, some pretty far out states of uh, of identity and consciousness, but his ability to communicate that to people, you know, on one it was was quite, but it's very abstract and really lacked personalness. And I feel, whereas on the other hand, you got, uh, you know, I can't can't bring anyone to mind at the moment, but. Um, you know, they write these very down-to-earth books or, you know, they have a manner of speaking that really connects with with people. Mm-hmm. And, and it might seem less than the abstract spiritual stuff, but it's just they've got this great knack and gift of the gab or, 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 they, or they are, they're so keen to share their message that they'll go to the lengths of doing extensive psychotherapy just so they kind of reconnect with the human condition that we're all experiencing yeah i think of someone maybe like ram das who Mm. i don't know how much therapy he did but he was certainly quite self-reflective and spent a good deal of his focus on compassion uh, for others and therefore was a wonderful communicator, uh, not only of the the tradition, so to speak, but uh, a communicator in human terms uh, in a very loving way. Now, I wasn't in any way close to uh, Ram Dass or so if there's more to that story, I wouldn't know, but from afar, he seems uh, very much like uh, that he balanced himself out. Um, And that maybe even as he said, his stroke also humanized him. Mm. Uh, He had a very terrible stroke and that left him with uh, some significant speech impediment and limitations in movement. And yet he lived another 20 years uh, and, you know, uh, was in the spiritual sense, I think humbled and, and grew as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. So we're coming right up to the end of our time together. Is there anything you feel that is is an important thing to to say on this subject that we haven't covered? I would say, you know, to those, uh, if there are those who are listening who feel that any of this is abstract, what I would just recommend is seeing if you can find some local practices to do. So as we've talked about, that could be a therapy group or some activity that seems like it's got some psychotherapeutic parts and visit a local meditation center and take a class. And of course, now I'm talking about post COVID uh, things Obviously, there's a lot you can do online, but it's nice to show up in person if you're able. Um, For those who understand and have a grasp on, okay, I know what psychotherapy is, I know what 
meditation and spiritual practices. I would say that patience is uh, the meta virtue. Uh, these things take time and uh, one can push, but only so much. Uh, and more pushing does not always lead to better results. Uh, there's a Zen story I remember. A Zen student goes to his teacher and he says, well, teacher, if I, if I meditate really hard and diligently, uh, how long will it take me to reach enlightenment? And the Zen teacher says, uh, 10, 10 years. And the student says, well, well, if I, I really put in a lot of effort and work even harder, how long will it take me uh, to reach enlightenment? And the, the teacher says, 20 years. Um, yeah. So, uh, so there is a, there's, we want to, the best we can let things unfold naturally and with time. And sometimes that looks like a, a deep dive and an immersion and doing retreats and really focusing on a practice or psychotherapy every week to really investigate yourself. And then there are other times where less is more and a slower pace is advantageous. Uh, and to do both of these things is, is, a, is the work of a lifetime, which is to say uh, there are many, there are many markers on the path that show progress, but the path itself may be endless. Uh, and, and when we cultivate patience uh, and self-understanding in that way, it eases the journey. Uh, and that's a little bit like we were talking about with process, enjoy the learn to enjoy the process itself, not just the goals. Um, yeah, I, I've really appreciated the caring and respectful tone of your contribution to this conversation, uh, not towards me, but towards humans, you know, in general, you know, it's, it's quite common when you're talking about these kind of subjects for people to get up on their pedestal and start bashing people you know for doing things wrong and um there's a there's a kind of warmth and um kindness that that's come across from you which i have really appreciated um yeah so nurturing <laughs> i think to the extent it's there uh it comes from 20 hours a week of working directly with people and getting to know them for, you know, going now on 20 years. And so none of this is that abstract to me yeah. in that sense. And, you know, one day maybe my Twitter profile will uh, reflect uh, my otherwise good humored tolerance. Uh, <laughs> but that, that may be the final test of enlightenment is social media. Yeah, I, I've never touched Twitter in my life. Um, yeah, I use Facebook, but Twitter Twitter is... works. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a, it's well, a Ralph, it was a total, total pleasure. I really uh, appreciate you having me on your show and I, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. And um, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I think the day's kind of just starting for you and it's kind of ending for me. It's yeah. funny, isn't mm -hmm. it? Other sides of the world. I love it. <laughs> yeah, the interconnection we have now is uh, something else. Yeah. So thank you so much, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. And- uh, Okay, take care, Ralph. Bye. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree.